everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. It's the week of February 7th, 2022, and we're back with another group episode. I'm here at the Boulder Groupetto in Boulder, Colorado with pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Also joining us is senior tech editor Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. And last but certainly not least, Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief Kaylee Fretz. Zach, it is so stupidly cold outside today that you and I are sitting here in the shop directly in front of an electric heater. It is very cold. Why the heck are so many people still coming in for bike work right now? Like we're, we're, we're literally behind a wall of cardboard boxes right now that isn't normally here. Yes. I mean, yesterday before I went to bed, it was negative 18 at my house, Fahrenheit, what? which is very cold. Yeah. And seemingly people are still riding bikes. I'm very busy at the moment. People are crazy. Crazy. I'm not Dave. sure crazy is even the right word. Dedicated? No. Stubborn. Stupid? <laughs> it's too I mean, cold. to be fair, most of these are Go most skiing. of these bikes in here are all projects of some sort. Fair not enough. Fair enough. I need this for my race tomorrow. <laughs> Kaylee, speaking of speaking of not riding bikes in winter, why is it that anytime we need to get a hold of you in the morning after a big snowstorm, you are nowhere to be found? It's really weird. I don't know why. It's uh it's it's so odd. Like your internet just happens to go out every morning after a big snowstorm. And my phone. Just everything stops working for three-ish hours the morning after Strange. a snowstorm. Yeah, it's, re- it's really so weird. weird. I don't, I don't so understand weird. it. Is no. it like a dead battery from the cold or is it what's My, what's my electronics do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Right. How odd. How odd. Dave, usual question for you. What's your latest tool purchase? Um... I feel like I'm just being judged here, but I actually uh, I got some power tools this week. Oh, yeah, I got. Um, That's fun. Uh, I'm invested in the Milwaukee range of of tools, and I got a a three eighth inch impact driver. Oh. Now, what do you plan on using that for? Um, well, I need to figure that one out still. <laughs> um, <laughs> Start crank bolts. Yeah, no, it's it's basically like yeah, it's like a it's a it's a a compact um bolt remover. So it'll it in theory will undo uh yeah fussy crank bolts or car wheel lugs or really anything that uh, would otherwise be painful to remove. And this thing's quite small and packs a punch. So basically, you're saying that you don't have a specific use for this tool right now, but you don't have it, so you bought one. Well, I mean, I already had an air impact, and then I had a <laughs> a larger impact, so like I didn't need it, but this one's new. And Dave, Dave, just to be clear, we're not judging you. We're we're just making sure you are owning who you are. Be proud of it. Okay. All right. Good. good. Stand okay. up. Stand well, up then I yourself. should probably mention I got the matching ratchet too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> God. Glorious. Ah. Glorious. As always, we have a superb show in store for you today. We've got a lot to talk about. We will discuss Specialized's recent move to going consumer direct for complete bikes. That is new from a major brand. Uh, We're going to talk about crash-resistant clothing, a new development in supposedly sustainable high-performance textiles, and we're going to talk about why your next bike should maybe be a cargo bike instead of yet another faster slash lighter, more air or whatever. And as always, we will wrap up with another edition of Ask a Mechanic. All right, so first up, Specialized recently announced a new program called Rider Direct that just went into effect a few days ago where people can buy a complete bike right on the Specialized website and then it'll either be delivered ready to go on your doorstep in a cardboard box or it'll be fully assembled and delivered to you by a participating dealer. E-bikes are not part of this program. It's important to note there is no discount from retail by going this route. Unlike dedicated direct-to-consumer brands like YT, Canyon, so on and so forth, uh, Specialized is also withholding 15% of its total bike inventory for itself instead of its massive dealer network. And speaking of which, while other dealers can get involved in the process by building and delivering those bikes to the end customers, as I had already mentioned, or if the customer decides to have the shop assemble the bike and then just pick it up there, either way, those dealers will no longer receive their full margin. I ran a poll on Twitter right after this news broke, and opinions were most definitely mixed on whether this was a good or bad thing. What do we think here? Do we have that audio of Mike Sinyard saying that they would never do this like 10 years ago? 
Oh, I wish. Uh, I wish. If we, if, if, we can find that, if we can find that audio, we've got to send that to Mel. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, because he, he did say that. And I think a lot, of, a lot of companies have sort of said that sort of thing over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, when, the, when it was clear that the internet wasn't going away and that this is probably the direction that most brands would go at some point. They were trying to assuage the fears of their dealers and they would say things like, we'll never go consumer direct. Never say never. And now they are. Yeah. And, and, and you know, there's like versions of this floating around, you know, like, like obviously there's Canyon. Everybody knows about Canyon. That's like an actual consumer direct company. But there's been sort of these like, like halfway versions for a while. And uh, this is kind of the first time we're seeing one of the big, well, essentially dealer oriented brands actually make the full switch, right? Because we've had the, you know, we'll ship the bike to the shop. Like you could buy it online, but we'll ship to the shop. You got to pick it up there. We've, we've had that sort of thing for a while. Trek does that, et cetera. But this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. I, and I, I would wager that we see others follow because of the details you mentioned before. The margins on these bikes for Specialized are just got even better, right? They're, they're going to make more money on every single one of these bikes because they're not discounting like Canyon does, basically. They're not, and, and the margin that the shop usually takes is now either non-existent or much smaller. So Specialized is about to make a bunch more money, and I have to think that some of their major competitors will be following down this road pretty soon. Yeah, I think the margin is one thing, but I think there's also the fact that, not, that Specialized doesn't service every area, right? Especially in North America, there's, there's people in places where they might have to drive two hours to get a Specialized. And that isn't great business for them because that customer is likely to going to support their, their nearest option for aftermarket support. So I guess, or they might've just previously got a Canyon because that comes to them. So I think there's a part here that it's convenience related as well. Uh, I know for a fact, like locally, certainly in Sydney, you get customers that have been burned by bike shops, right? That have had a bad experience and don't want to ever go back into that shop, even if that's their local Trek dealer or their local specialized dealer. So they'll just end up getting a different brand because they don't like the person that runs the bike shop. So I think there's there's other reasons other than just pure margin that Specialized is playing at here, but it's still, you know, a kick in the teeth to the to the dealers. I think it's probably an unpopular opinion, particularly myself being a small bike shop owner, but I think it's a really good thing. Like Kaylee said, it's 2022, the internet isn't going away, internet purchases aren't going away. But I think like Historically, bike shops exist because they have X brand and customers come in because they want to buy X brand of product, whether it's a Specialized or a Trek or whatever. And those bike shops exist because of that. So I think there are a lot of bike shops out there who haven't changed or evolved how they do business in 30 years. So I think there are a lot of below average bike shops out there. So I think if this, maybe some bike shops close, but then the rest of them kind of have to step their game up to bring something else to the table, whether it's community or service or you have a coffee shop or whatever it is, you're bringing something, giving the customers another reason to come to the bike shop other than we sell X product. So I think at the end of the day, long term, it's going to be a good thing because it will strengthen bike shops rather than people having to basically be to whatever specialized dealer agreement is basically. I mean, yeah, like the, in the short term, there's going to be some pain. For sure. And that's always unfortunate, right? Like, you know, we know people that work in specialized shops and that sucks. And, and it, you know, it's going to be a little bit painful, I'm sure. At the same time, the bike industry and bike shops specifically have been very much insulated by these major bike brands from the Internet. And the Internet has been around for decades. So maybe it's it, it probably is time to stop insulating bits of the industry from the thing that actually works much better for consumers. Because I think, you know, the big question here is, is this better for, is this better for bike riders? We can talk all we want about whether this is better or worse from, for, for local bike shops. And that is important, right? Local bike shops are important, but they are dramatically outnumbered by consumers. <laughs> and so if the, if the benefit for consumers, we think outweighs the, the essentially detriment for shops, then this is something that I think we could generally get behind. Yeah, so I, I said that I ran that Twitter poll uh, right after this news broke, and the opinions were very much split. It was practically 50-50. And from what I could gather, most of the people who were in the pro category were like, 
were basically end consumers. There were people who were like, sweet, this is easier for me. I don't need to go through the bike shop for what I want anyway. I can just get it delivered to my door. Like it's just way more convenient. It's, it's, you know, it's 2022, as you said, Kaylee, it's the internet. You can buy pretty much any, you can buy cars online. Uh, you can basically buy a house online if you want to. Um, and the other half of the poll were, most of them were retailers seemingly who essentially were like, this is completely screwing us. Uh, and not even so much because of the margin thing. I did hear from a lot of retailers who were like, you know, the whole click and collect concept. They were saying that it, they're actually pretty, pretty down with that because they don't have to carry the inventory. They still get a cut and essentially all they have to do is put a bike together. So like they were actually kind of excited about, well, some of them anyway, were actually pretty excited about that part. The biggest issue that people seem to have with this on the retail side was with the inventory part. Um, so according to specialized, um, dealers are categorized into different tiers with tier, tier one being their, their highest priority dealer. And in a normal scheme, those tier one dealers would get priority in terms of stock if things are running low. So now supposedly specialized is classifying themselves as a tier one dealer. So they are at the front of the line just as with everybody else. But well, as you said, Gailey, seeing as how they are still selling bikes at full price and they are now going to be taking all of that margin for themselves and not sharing it with anyone else. I mean, does it seem beyond reason to think that they might be like a slightly above tier one? Because I heard from a lot of dealers who, who said that they had bikes on order for months and then they had a customer who was just able to go online, order that bike. It was in stock on the website, had it delivered right away. Yeah, that's and that's the thing that's bothering me most is that they're holding 15% of their stock when shops are waiting six to nine months to get that stock. I mean, it doesn't really seem like Specialized has the the supply at the moment to be withholding anything from its dealers who are like literally begging for stock in order to survive. It kind of just seems like poor timing. I think it's definitely poor timing. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we, well, it's poor, either poor timing or you could maybe speculate that they wanted to roll this out a long time ago because they had already rolled out um, direct-to-consumer parts and accessories ordering for a while now. And you have to think that was basically just a test bed for this. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And we had we had talked in previous episodes too about how big brands have been buying up physical bike shops for a while now. And it seems pretty clear at this point that for companies that are big enough and have the money, essentially what they are trying to do is they're going to have consumer direct sales off of their website and then they're going to have a whole fleet of company-owned local stores which is basically what trek's been doing which yeah exactly trek has been doing this kind of quietly for a long time i mean i feel like they just there's still like no middleman they just have more overhead than say specialized or yeah Canyon. right yeah i just heard that trek's up to 31 owned stores in australia so they're not just doing it have, in north america no, no yeah and they have far 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 more than that in, in north america. oh yeah they've been they've been yeah. at this game for quite a while now i mean the, the sort of counter argument to this right you know i don't want to I don't want to just toss aside the damage that this, that this does to, to local bike shops, right? No, like potential not at all. damage because like, like local bike shops, when they're good shops, you know, when they're not the type of shop that shop that Rome is talking, talking about where you're, you're literally like people don't want to buy things from you anymore because they've had bad experiences. And yes, there are those shops out there for sure. I think in large part, because this industry has been artificially protected from the internet. And so therefore they, they sort of had this built-in clientele that couldn't really go anywhere else for a while, right? With that ending, maybe the worst shops, maybe those start to die, right? But even I would say some that of, that's been happening for a while. Yeah, it's already been happening. But even some of the, like the, you know, just your, your garden variety shop, just a good local shop, the kind of shop that, you know, they build community, they run, they run rides, they run clinics, they run lots of important stuff. So I don't want to just sort of immediately toss aside like, well, we don't need bike shops anymore, right? Because that, that's not really true either. Like lots of really good like bike shops. Like all these bikes still need work done. So yeah. bike shops will still exist. Right. Yeah. We're just, it'll probably be what, 30% less? I'm, well, I'm not talking about just from the specialized thing, but as the entire industry goes this way, because 10 years from now, I think that's Everyone's probably the most way. likely. That's the, that's the most likely years, outcome. 10 months from now. Five, but, yeah, soon. Yeah. Soon, right? Who's going to do the work when there's a recall? That's, well, that's, sorry, that was a bit too spicy. Yeah, like, well, so whenever that does happen, they're like, what percentage of bike shops go away? Uh, 20%, 30%, 50%, I don't know. All those numbers, if you work in a shop and you run a shop, are terrifying. But at the end of the day, we're probably, we, we have a bit of a glut of shops in a lot of places at this point in time. And I'm not sure that 
for the cyclist, a small, like essentially like lopping off of the bottom is going to be all that negative. While at the same time, yeah, like it, it, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm stuck in this weird place where like that sucks, right? Like there's, a, there's going to be shops that people love that disappear because of these decisions that are made by big bike brands. And that sucks. But at the same time, like Zach said, had about 30 years to prepare for this. The internet has been around for a while. It's not like we're in, you know, 1996 AOL trying to figure out how this thing works. It's probably time to make some shifts and and try to keep that business afloat if you if you want to stay an important part of your of your local bike community, right? It it does feel like we are heading toward an automotive model in a lot of ways because you do have these, you know, these exclusive dealer franchises, that sort of thing. And then you have these independent service only shops. Like, you know, Kaylee, I know that you you don't live in Boulder anymore, but you know, we have various dealerships, of course, all over the place here. But then we also have independent repair repair places like, you know, Hoshi Motors and Boulder Valley Automotive and stuff like that. Places that are really, really highly regarded that don't sell cars. Yeah. And what, what I would say is uh, e-bikes are driving that faster than anything else, right? Like the the whole proprietary service of, of a dealer only, that's... Uh, yeah. Specialize is a perfect example that they're using their own systems um, to work on those. I'm pretty certain you need a, you need to be a specialized dealership with a with a login that lets you do the firmware updates and that type of thing. Right. So right. Um, yeah. I mean, absolutely, the industry is going that way, but nothing's driving it more than e-bikes. Um, and currently, Specialized is keeping that to its dealers at least. It it does also bring up kind of the irony that we are in a period where bikes particularly high-end bikes, um, but also e-bikes in general, are are getting more technologically advanced. There's a lot more electronics involved. There's a lot more sort of diagnostic tools and a lot more specialized stuff that's required to not just assemble, but also to service and maintain these things. And it's interesting that while we are heading in that direction on the product side, we are also, I guess, removing the incentive or removing the, the, the motivation for some of these dealers to carry some of those bikes in general. So if you have an issue with one of these bikes that you have ordered consumer direct and the shop has now at this point, let's say a few years down the road, really hasn't had much experience in one of those bikes. What does that do to service? I mean, Zach, I guess for, from your perspective, you obviously don't sell bikes, but you still have to be up to date on all the latest and greatest out there. So how do you deal with that? I guess I read stuff on the internet and try and keep up to date. But I mean, for the most part, like a bike is a bike. Just naturally like, awesome. <laughs> no, you just like, I don't know. You read this tech docs about whatever new group set or whatever it is. I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just a bicycle. Right. But, but at the same time, you're also not necessarily equipped to do like firmware updates on a Bosch E-Drive motor or like you can't really service a, like a, a specialized Levo motor or something, right? No, definitely not. I mean, that would go, I mean, even non-e-bikes like specialized historically, you have an epic mountain bike with the brain shock that brain shock has to go back to specialized to be serviced through a specialized dealer. So there's, I mean, there are definitely limitations to what I do here. Like someone comes in with a shock like that and they're like, this needs fixed. I'm like, well, it has to go through a specialized dealer. I can work on the rest of the bike, but this has to go back. Um, Which is super annoying. And by the way, like if, if this does end up meaning that there are fewer specialized dealers, that's something they're going to have to deal with. Right. Yeah. They'll definitely yeah. have to change that. Like if you live, like Dave said, two hours away from a specialized dealer and you bought an Epic, you're like, well, the shock needs serviced. Somehow you can either send it in yourself or a regular bike shop can send it in or whatever. Like those, those shocks, um, in particular, like specialized, I think only supports them up to like six years or something after production. Yeah. So it's like, if you've got like an early Epic, they won't actually fix that for you, but there are now nope. like aftermarket service centers that'll take that stuff on. Um, then I don't think they're that common in the U S but we've got a few in Australia that will do that type of work. Um, and I think that's where things are going to go, right? Like that's, it's just opening the door more for the specialists like yourself, but even more specialists, you know, you get yeah, specialist totally. like suspension centers, specialist e-bike motor centers. You're going to have all these sort of, uh, offshoot businesses growing off the back of this kind of move. So it's, um, yeah, but either way, it's very clear that, we are in a period of massive, massive change as far as how retail works. And 100%, again, like, as we said, Trek already has their click-to-collect program where you order a bike online and pick it up at a dealer. You have to think that they are going to soon offer the ability to have a bike shipped directly to your door. Giant, 100%, they're going to have to order, offer that 
Cannondale, whoever. I mean, everyone's going to have to be in this boat sooner or later. I mean, I feel like Specialized is the one that everyone kind of looks to. So I'll, I guarantee you most of the other companies already have this already lined up and now Specialized is totally. launched. Totally. No and question. now they're just like figuring out how to do the press launch. And, oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah if, you lo- if you look at Trek Bikes, for example, like their website is ready to go with this. Like they've got oh, yeah. e- e-commerce rolling. They've got cardboard boxes that they're already using in the Chinese market that are designed for consumer direct business that make it easier for assembly. So, I mean, they've got everything lined up. It's just a matter of, you know, making sure that they're not going to disadvantage their business by making this move. I mean, Trek is a smart company. Giant is a smart company. When Canyon came into the U.S. in particular a few years ago, everyone saw that writing on the wall. And Kaylee, like, like you said, the bike industry in the U.S. in particular has been largely insulated from a lot of this stuff. But once I think once Canyon opened their doors here, and once that sort of buying buying direct on a large scale became much more common, I mean, then, I'm surprised it took this long. Uh, well, yeah, like Canyon's been sure. in the U.S. for what five years already. Yeah, like how are you just now doing this? But again, but Canyon Canyon sort of proved that the content can work on a on a bigger scale. I mean, they certainly had growing pains here in the U.S. They still are. Um, but now that it's become a much more accepted and much more normal thing, I think in the buying public, at least particularly here in this country, then, you know, now that specialized has, has gone that way, then the floodgates are open. It, it's done. Can I get one last point on this is that the whole, uh, e-bikes not being done through this is kind of specialized forcing its dealers to go all in on e-bikes, right? It's like, it's a move that they're probably very happy to do. But it's like, you know, they're basically signaling to their dealers that if you want to make full margin, then just carry all of our e-bikes and, you know, sell as many of those as possible. And I think that's quite interesting given that Specialized is probably more heavily invested in e-bikes than pretty much any other major bike company out there. I mean, even even as of this was maybe three or four years ago, I think now, um, Specialized had told me flat out that I think in terms of their certainly dollar amount, uh, I think they were saying that they sold more bikes, more e-bikes in Europe than they did regular, fully human-powered mountain bikes in Europe. And that was, again, that was several years ago now. And that trend certainly hasn't been going in the other direction. Good for consumers, bad for bike shops. Certainly different for bike shops. I mean, bike, bike, shops, for are some bike, shops. To, bike shops are being forced to adapt yet again. So buckle up, folks. It's going to get interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, as many of you listening are likely aware, uh, technical editor Ronan McLaughlin was recently in a little bit of a crash that resulted in a really nasty double leg fracture. So he will be in an external fixator for another couple months, unfortunately. But uh, Ronan, ever the faithful Cycling Tips employee, so dedicated to his readers that he was actually wearing a pair of Asos bib tights during that crash that are purpose-built to help prevent road rash. Um, Those little pads on the hips... All those tights obviously didn't really do a whole lot as far as keeping his leg from getting broken, but the idea of cycling clothing with built-in injury protection isn't exactly new. Um, you know, I know that the four of us here, we all wear pads pretty regularly when mountain biking, especially for like lift access stuff or anytime we're kind of in some like gnarlier terrain. But I always wonder why isn't this more of a conversation for road and gravel riding? I mean, we all wear helmets, right? But when was the last time you crashed and hit your head? Uh, so, I mean... Knock on wood. Really, I try not to crash on the road bike. Where crashing on a mountain bike is much higher probability. Strict, strict no crash policy over yeah, here. Yeah, but so my fiance Ruth, when she was on Sunweb, they had a kit. I don't remember who made it. Uh, yeah. Is it, is it, uh, what was it? it I don't remember. Exondo? Anyway, Dur- Dur- like Durima or what was it? Um, was it Exondo? Yeah, but it had this maybe? different, it didn't have padding like these ASOS bibs. It but had like it a had, brazen resistance. It was a different stuff. fabric. And yeah, you'd go down in a crash because you're road racing and that's what happens all the time. And you would still get bruises and stuff, but your whole Dyneema. hip wouldn't, you wouldn't, hip wouldn't be torn up with road rash and everything. So it, it works. I have Googled it. Dyneema. Well, that's that's the name of the that's the name of the material. Um, I can't remember the names of the companies that it wasn't Exondo, was it? Actually, it I, don't, I don't think so. Been. I mean, I know yeah. Scott did. I feel it. like they actually, actually, I think that was right. Oh, was it? Yeah. Uh, I know. Oh, we, we can look at the jersey right now. I don't have any <laughs> Sunweb jerseys here. Mm. I'm sure Kraft. I'm sure there's one at home. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Kraft. There's anyway. A, well, it says Kraft on the dude's shorts in this in this picture. Maybe it was craft. A reader will a reader will have to verify. Or right. listener will have Whatever to verify. Whatever Sunweb ran a few years ago. But either way, <laughs> um, this is it's it's not an uncommon well it's not a, to- a totally uncommon thing to go down on the road 
And I think all four of us here have gone down on the road at some point, and it is never pleasant, no matter how low speed the crash is. I went to the dermatologist recently, and she was like, are you a cyclist? <laughs> and I was like, "That's a is it because I'm skinny? <laughs> She's like, no, it's because my husband, who's also a cyclist, has all the same scars. And I was like, cool. On all the same places. <laughs> so, yes, I have fallen down on the road a couple times. <laughs> so, so anyway, it, it makes me wonder. So, again, as I said, Scott tried to introduce a line of abrasion-resistant clothing quite a long time ago. I want to say it may, may have even been like almost 10 years ago or something, but that it never really took off. Why isn't this more of a thing? Like, would you wear it? I don't. I mean, maybe if I was still racing crits or something, I'd be like, okay, like a little heel or not heel, um, hip pad. I mean, maybe, maybe. But it's sort of like, I don't, if you're a little superstitious, isn't that kind of asking for it? <laughs> like, I don't know. But again, like yeah, I said, you're like racing all, in a bunch. It's going to happen right? inevitably. You're going to go down. Yeah, true. But on the road, like, but like at the same just time, just riding, I, try not I, to crash. You know, I stopped racing a while ago road racing still do the occasional mountain bike race knock on wood haven't fallen down on a road bike in half a decade because i'm not racing and if i fall down when i'm not racing i'm just being a real dumbass and doing something really stupid so i don't do that <laughs> i just like i you know i don't whip around corners when there's sand around and i don't i just don't i just it's so i haven't crashed in five years so i don't really feel the need to put anything on but you're also road. a pretty skilled rider probably probably above average because of the amount of time that i've spent racing and mountain bikes and stuff like that but uh, but like at the same time i don't know well, so i, I don't thing. feel like so, the risk is high enough for me on the road to to want to wear pads all day all day every day that i'm riding for the once every half decade loss of skin where i just get in the shower and it sucks for five minutes and then i'm fine you know two weeks later bigger bigger picture it's a cultural thing right like no no one's wants to be that first person in their cycling group to spend an extra hundred to two hundred dollars on a pair of padded bib shorts that then everyone's like, huh, oh, you're the gumby of the group. You're you're expecting a crash. <laughs> like it, it, you, it, takes, <laughs> it would take like, you know, it'd literally take the world tour to say, okay, from now on, everyone needs to have the padded shorts. Like, you know, everyone needs to have protection built into their lycra. And then consumers would be like, Oh, well, if they do it, I could do it. I think there there's a difference. Like I wear pads on my mountain bike sometimes. And no matter what brand of pads you have, they're not comfortable. They get hot and they overheat and they're uncomfortable and they kind of bind on the back of your knee funny. Like on a road bike, having being comfortable is so much more of a high, high priority. So I think if it's just a fabric, I'm okay with that as long as it doesn't make my hip extra hot. But putting pads on my shorts, well, that seems yeah, really I'm silly. Not, I'm not saying that you need to have pads. That that does seem like a you know a, a step too far, especially given current I guess, current cycling culture. Um, but I guess I'm asking more about the abrasion resistance thing, in particular uh, fabrics that are designed to uh, kind of slide more across the road so that the, the, the fabric slides instead of you shredding your skin. Um, I'm just kind of wondering, why don't we see more of that? Because as you said- Is it a Zach, patent? Does somebody have a patent I, on it and you have to license it to build your shorts with it? I, I don't know. But like you said, Ruth uh, Ruth's team kit had that in in her shorts. Yeah, I mean, but then she's also raced on other teams after that and had not that. Right. And has survived. Right. But survived, but like, you know, and she certainly has crashed. Like, would she have lost less skin? Or would she have lo- so do I you- mean, it's still like, it's only on your hip though. So you can go down and you lose all of the skin on your arm and your elbow right. and your ankle and everything else that uh, you hit. Ultimately, you're still not wearing crash. that much clothing. No, you're not. So at the end of the day, I don't think it's- And it's it's know. very thin material. So like, is it going to really prevent the like abrasion burn on your skin or is it just going to stop you from showing your ass on TV? Potentially uh, well, it's hard that. to say because the thing, <laughs> the thing is like, if you crash when it's wet outside, right? And you're sliding across wet pavement, you lose a lot less skin that way. I've just been Googling over here. So DSM, as in the sponsor of Team DSM, uh, is, is DSM Biomedical Solutions. And they make Dyneema, which is the stuff in the shorts. So I, I'm sure it's still in whatever shorts they have. I don't know who makes their stuff this year, but it sounds like they, they, they're probably supplying that as a material to whoever is making the shorts at the time. And it... Yeah. I haven't heard anything about it spreading. Didn't Ineos briefly talk talk about some other magic wonder material at some point? 
I feel like Ineos, they go the opposite. They have the Castelli shorts that have holes the whole way. <laughs> you get like speckled, speckled sunburn. <laughs> anyway, so that's where that comes from. It's like the actual sponsor of the team makes this stuff. I don't know. I, we're like, we're, you're cruising around at 40 miles an hour in your undies. <laughs> it's like, I think, it, I think to do that, you have to have some level of uh, cognitive dissonance around the fact that you might crash. Like you just can't, it, like you can't hold those things in your head. At the, like you, we, we know that you certainly can if you want to be an effective bike racer. If you think about crashing, you might as well just retire because you're done, right? Now for the rest of us who are, who are not bike racers, like I said, I've, I hope that you don't crash all that often. And I would suggest that if you do, maybe you should try to ride slightly differently. But I, I just, I don't, I don't, oh, Zach's laughing. Right. Like if you crash, if you crash out riding on an open road by yourself all the time, then you're doing something wrong. All right. Well, sticking to the subject of clothing, uh, this is not really so much a discussion item as it is just something I wanted to share with our listeners because I found it interesting. Um, I kind of wish I could remember who brought this to my attention now, but Um, there's a new textile technology that is currently in development that promises to take natural fibers like, like cotton, hemp, or wool. Um, and they somehow modified or adapted to make it quick drying and wicking like modern synthetic fibers. So the material, um, this material in particular is called Clarus, C-L-A-R-U-S. And it's been developed by a company called Natural Fiber Welding. Um, so from the company website, it says, quote, Using green chemistry principles and closed-loop processes, we engineer performance textiles from virgin and recycled natural fibers. We built the Claris technology platform on the science of welding fibers. Claris drives extensive intermolecular bonding in natural polymers, effectively lengthening and strengthening natural fibers, unquote. So I, I, don't, I have no idea when this stuff might actually be used in cycling, um, but the company actually supposedly already has support from mainstream brands like like Patagonia and Ralph Lauren, um, Allbirds, like that shoe company, um, and BMW is using another, pro- uh, apparently using another uh, product from this company that's like it's kind of like a synthetic leather sort of thing. Um, so an expansion within cycling seems pretty plausible, if not likely. Um, I have no idea what it'll be like, what it'll look like, how it'll actually perform, et cetera. But considering, you know, we talk a lot about sustainability, it's a very common topic in a lot of what we talk about these days anyway. Um, and essentially cycling clothing is basically just a fancy plastic bag. Um, so given that I'm pretty excited to see where this goes because the stuff, again, it's, it's sourced from renewable materials. It can be broken down, composted and recycled. Um, I'm kind of stoked to see what happens here. Seems like the opposite of high tech clothing that keeps you from getting road rash. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, yes. It's not quite the same thing. So, so is it like, do, do you know what the process is like? Because they, they don't talk about the process super specifically, probably for obvious reasons, right. but, um, they, they do have a bunch of scanning electron microscope images on its website. Again, the company is called natural fiber welding. And it, it, it sounds like they are subjecting it to some sort of heat process, if only just based on the, what they describe as welding. And it, it, it changes the, the physical form or the f- physical shape and essentially of, of these natural fibers, which are normally kind of like kind of fuzzy. And it seems to make them more like synthetic fibers and supposedly they behave more like synthetic fibers, but it's not plastic and it doesn't like stick around forever like plastic. It sounds cool. Sounds really but- cool. I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm just like trying to think of like, I don't, I mean, clearly it's a probably a quite a complicated process, but you know, like there's a lot of, um, a lot of high performance fibers now are, are, you know, some kind of fiber with like essentially like a, almost like a plastic wrap around it. That's, you know, microscopic level plastic wrap around each individual fiber. That's how a lot of like Gore-Texes and things are made. For example, I'm wondering if it's kind of a similar thing, but it's wrapping a natural fiber in something unnatural or if it's just, I, I, I don't I, think they're wrapping it in anything. Like it seems like some sort of thermal process, but I can't, I can't tell. Cool. Well, yeah, maybe this is one for if we've got a listener out there who knows anything more about textiles, because uh, this is neat. But I'm looking through the website and cannot figure out for the life of me how they're doing it, which, again, is probably purposeful. <laughs> yes, yes. Probably some so trade anyway, secrets there. As I said, this is not necessarily a topic for debate or discussion, but I thought it was pretty cool and I wanted to share it. And I plan on digging into this a little bit more and seeing what this is all about, because it seems cool. I like mm. it. This stuff sucks. Mm. Nice. <laughs>
So I was just starting to debate. No? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> fail. You failed. All right. Well, one thing I hope that all of us can get behind is uh, something I'm pretty excited about, which is cargo bikes. Um, so we just published my long-term review of the Urban Aero family, which is one of the more popular box bikes out there, uh, partic- particularly in Europe. And this one features just an absolutely huge expanded foam cargo box up front. It's sort of just like a giant rectangular helmet almost. You can carry a ton of stuff in it. You can carry people in it. Actually rides pretty okay. Range with the Bosch uh, mid-drive motor is surprisingly good. All sorts of accessories available for it. It's actually quite capable in crummy weather. Um, I've had mine for over, let's see, two and two and two months or two years and three months now. And anyone who follows my Instagram att- account can attest that I'm a pretty huge fan. Uh, Kaylee, you just bought one back in September, I think. So I am keen to hear your thoughts on it because, um, I mean, granted, we both live in places that have good infrastructure where we can feel comfortable sticking our kids in this thing and riding it around. But I don't know. It's kind of my favorite bike in the garage, I think. I mean, I've ridden it. So we got 610 miles on it, I think was this morning after I, after the drop off, uh, since, yeah, since September 11th, actually, September 10th, I think is the day that I picked it up. So that's, that's a pretty good rate. It's actually more miles than I put on any other bicycle in that time, uh, road, mountain, anything. So I think that tells you, well, how much I've been riding it. I've been riding it to and to and from the, the kiddo drop off twice a day, every single day. I love it. I mean, it's for us, it's about not having to get in the truck, right? Like our own, our only other vehicle is a really stupid Ram 2500 with a camper on it. <laughs> like Kermit the land yacht. Kermit the, I, I, li- I literally get like seven miles per gallon in town, right? It is not an in-town vehicle. That is not what it is for. It is for like big, long trips where we drive somewhere and camp for a while. And like, that's its purpose. And it, it is a God awful in-town vehicle. And so the ability to not, drive that thing for weeks at a time is is pretty amazing because what 610 miles that's about a tank and a half worth of gas in that thing that's about 150 bucks that the bike has already saved me granted it costs a little bit more than that but you know it's 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 wear and tear in the truck it's greenhouse gas it's it's everything it's not right? a second car it's not a second car yeah I, I don't have to get in the car every morning twice to get my daughter over to her grandparents house where she where she does sort of daycare during the day so yeah, it's it's a fantastic vehicle. You went over some of the kind of low points, I think, in your in your review. We've had we have the same opinion. Like the front end gets really really light when there's no there's nothing in there. So like I've left a twenty pound bag of sand just sitting up there, <laughs> uh, which what, not, was it nine nine kilos ish? Um, yeah, because it's just particularly around here where like I'll, I'll ride in the snow a fair amount with this thing. And even with studded tires, if there's no weight on the front tire, you'll go to turn and you're just like, nah, we're just going straight. We're going straight still. It, it, it'd be like driving a front wheel drive pickup truck backwards. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Like there's a lot of weight over the drive wheel, the rear wheel, but there's no weight over the steering wheel, the front wheel. Uh, yeah. So it's like some, some like little issues like that, that the sort of the, I haven't had the um, high-speed wobble like you have so much. I had it once, and that's because I was trying to make it happen, and I went down a hill really fast and, like, slammed on my front brake, and lo and behold, I managed to make the front wheel ch- chatter. But that's the only time I've had that happen. It's just, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, fantastic, it's a fantastic addition to my stable. Like, I, I can't really imagine not having it at this point, basically. Well, let me ask you this. So you did live here in Boulder for a long time, you and Meg, before you had a kid. Is this something that you wish that you had gotten something like this? Not necessarily that particular one, but do you kind of wish that you had gotten something like that sooner? I don't, I I think without a kid, I wouldn't use it anywhere near as much, right? Like the reason I'm, I basically, it's a five mile or five and a bit mile round trip that I, again, I I do twice a day, right? So I, I, I ride it 10 miles a day. Uh, the, that's the reason why I get 600 miles on it in a couple months. Without that, I mean, frankly, I work from home. My wife's a teacher. She commutes to school on a different bike. I don't, I wouldn't ride it that much, right? Like I'd, I'd go to the grocery store and back on, on once a week. To me, it's a, it's a, it's way too expensive as a, as a, to be used once a week, right? We're talking about a bike that is retail, like seven grand. Yeah. $7,000 like that. That's, you can get a heck of a Honda civic for seven grand. Well, maybe not right now. Uh, <laughs> the used mar- car market is, is nuts at the moment, but anyway, normally you get a heck of a, of a used Honda civic where that'll get you to 
the grocery store and back once a week, you know, with a heater, which is nice. But the second we had the kid and I needed to get her to and from somewhere every single day, essentially have a commute with something that I, I should, I should step back and say it fits the, um, the actual car seat, like the, the, you know, the very safe car seat, it clicks into this thing on like two little suspended pegs. And so her ride is actually more comfortable than my ride. Without that, without needing to haul something to and fro five miles round trip twice a day, I don't, I don't necessarily think something like this would be worth it. Um, All right. Well, Dave and, and Zach, I want I'm really curious to get your opinion on this too, because again, uh, Kaylee and I are in very, I guess, favorable conditions and life situations for something like this. Dave, you live in Sydney. It's a very urban area. You don't have a kid. Um, and Zach, you live in I, sort of like a mountain semi-rural town. It's small. Yes. Um, and you also do not have a child. So I am also curious to hear from the two of you. <laughs> I'm also curious to hear from the two of you. Would something like this, or just a car, an electric cargo bike in general, it doesn't necessarily have to be something like this, like a front loader. Would something like that make sense for you? Uh, I own and have owned for three or four years an e like an urban e-bike, which is designed for just riding around, doing errands and commuting, and and I love it. Uh, and I recently, maybe six months ago, very nearly bought a Turn GSD, which is like a sort of a compact cargo bike. And in the end, it was, it was basically what Kaylee was saying. It's it's the cost of it, right? So like for the amount of use I'd get from that and the fact that I don't necessarily always have a lot of things to carry around, uh, it was just too much to justify. It was sort of, there was, there was no real easy way to justify it other than want, right? There was no cost justification. There was no, um, yeah, there's no, it's not like I was going to get rid of a car because of it either because of the distances we have to travel and Sydney is quite, separated and quite dangerous to get to certain places on on a bike like some parts of sydney are just almost a death trap i guess to, to ride a bike in so uh yeah in the, in that sense it just didn't make financial sense as much as i wanted it and i still continue to want one that said cargo bike like your urban arrow doesn't make a lot of sense for around here there's there's a lot of cycle lanes that are barely wide enough for an, a, a, a standard bike and then for example, this if I want to, is not small. Yeah, and for example, if I want to get to the city, I have to go up a staircase oh, um, oh. to get to the Harbour Bridge. There's like a, a very inconveniently placed staircase with a ramp that you have to walk up, and that would just be—I could just imagine that being quite painful with a. It's cargo not bike. happening very easily on a, on an urban area. I mean, the, the, no. it, has a, it has a walk mode, but I'm if it's if you're going up stair gradient, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, that the walk mode would be I, I'm sure people do this currently, but. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be that practical. Whereas, like, I've seen friends ride their their turn GSDs down this down those stairs. So, oh, you know, oh, that I think geez. there's there's a level of cargo bike that's practical for Sydney, and then something like an Urban Arrow, you kind of really want to stick to a certain area of of town if you're going to have a bike like that, at least around here. Zach, what about you? I mean, I think first of all, I think they're really cool, and I think if I lived still down here in Boulder in town, having some sort of e bike would be great to run errands with. But where I live now, it just like I am up up the hill, basically 20 miles from Boulder, up 3000 feet of vertical. So like, if I had one, I would just immediately kill the battery riding home. <laughs> yes, you, you but, would. And I also like I live a five minute walk from the tiny grocery store and the coffee shop and everything else. And if I'm commuting most of the time, like in the summer, I'll ride down, occasionally ride home or take and then take the bus home. And now, like in the winter, I just take the bus to work and I take the bus home. So I'm not, I mean, occasionally I'll drive, but if I have other errands or whatever to run, but I don't, for me personally, in my situation, I do not need an e-cargo bike. It would just sit there. I, I think that it, like I said, unless you've got, well, or, or like the, the coffee was delivered to the shop right at the beginning of the show, right? This is right before we hit record, but you know, there's a, there's a, uh, the coffee ride, which is, I think in the same neighborhood as you still Zach, right? Uh, no, or did he, he moves, move? But, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. He, he guy in Boulder delivers, like I said, the coffee ride delivers all uh, all his coffee beans by bicycle and does so in a giant like cargo version of the Urban Arrow. That's a that's a great use case, right? Or if you've got a kid, that's a great use case. I think for everybody else, and we've talked about this before, 
why it's way too expensive. Just get one of those rad power bikes, right? Like if you're if you're doing the which are like two grand or something or less than two. Yeah, grand. if you're doing the the the, the financial calculation, and you're like, all right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this thing fifteen hundred miles a year, two thousand miles a year, just commuting or whatever or whatever. You know, what's the cost of that in a car? Like how how you know can I make this kind of work? If you just take the sort of like, okay, bikes are more fun than driving, right? If you take all that stuff out of the equation and just do a straight financial calculation, you get a heck of a lot closer to uh, having it be feasible if the bike is 1500 bucks or 1800 bucks than it is if it's 7000 right? Like that, we're talking about totally like orders of magnitude here. There is like a use case though. Like we were in Belgium for road worlds and you're just sitting in the square watching the people ride by every morning. And there's hundreds of these e-cargo bikes, whether they're people taking their kids to school or people doing deliveries or whatever, just like constantly going by. And it's so, so cool. And if you lived in a very urban area where cars are not friendly to use, then it would be great. And you had good cycling infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like you know, Durango's cycling infrastructure is not as good as Boulder's. Um, but it's also not very heavily populated. It's a, well, it's a smaller town. It can feel pr- quite busy during tourist season. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, massive trucks here like mine basically but like my, my truck feels really stupid in boulder and feels completely normal in durango right you're surrounded by full-size by, by full-size trucks uh which means that being on the roads is even scarier than it, than it would be otherwise and and you know there's definitely durango is on the edge where i live is on the edge of feasible for me to ride my my 10 month old daughter in a bicycle on on roads to her grandparents' house, right? Like if it was any bigger, any busier, if the infrastructure was any worse, I probably would make a calculation that that was not a worthwhile thing to do, that that was not safe, right? So I I, I do know that there's a lot of places out there that are that fall in the worse for cycling than Durango, Colorado, probably most places. <laughs> but it, it so I, I do think it requires it requires yeah like you know. The Netherlands, like, you know, Amsterdam, it requires real urban centers that have that have fully taken advantage of the space that they have and made it viable for bicycles. You know, I think about like my brother lives in Boston. I don't think I'd want one of these things in Boston. One, I couldn't get into it into an apartment Two, most of the roads have sharrows, if anything at all. That sounds terrifying, right? Like I have no interest in, in trying that. Maybe maybe a, a an e-bike more like what Rome has it makes more sense. I, I think that, frankly, James, even though we love our Urban Arrows, that it is, it is a life-changing bike if you have the right circumstances. It's a pretty 100% nar- the circumstances have to be there. Yeah, if it's a pretty narrow band of people for whom it will actually work, I think. Well, so I am curious, for anyone listening to this, uh, feel free to head over to the, the, the podcast page over on SalconTips.com uh, because I would be curious to hear, one, if something like this would ever be of interest to you. And two, if you also have the personal and infrastructure situation that would make something like this practical. Um, And I guess actually maybe three, sort of how much something like this would have to be for you to consider it. So let us know on on the webpage if you wouldn't mind, because I am curious to hear from you. All right. Well, we are coming up in the hour mark here, and we've still got a whole bunch of asking mechanic questions to get through. So let's just see if we can get through just a few of them here. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes, sealants and chain loops. So I don't think we're going to get through this whole list, but we should at least try and hammer out a few. All right. Let Let's get started here. You said hammer out a few. Ha, 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 ha. Yes, our resident hammer. All right, first question comes from, as always, these are all from our Velo Club members. This one comes from member Rob Stein. Uh, Rob would like to know, can I use the same chain sizing method for a 1x12 mountain bike drivetrain as on a road bike? How do I factor in chain growth, if any? I mean, I would just follow the instructions, whether it's a Shimano or a SRAM. Like, I would, they have a very easy, this is how you measure it with, if it's a full suspension, if it's a hardtail, just follow that and you should be good. Yeah, because those instructions all do take in all that stuff into account. Yeah. But in, in general, uh, it is slightly different to sizing a chain on a road bike. Yes, it is. And I guess especially now that we are talking about things like potentially high pivot mountain bikes, although those those now have idlers, so those shouldn't have too much chain. Well, no, they're still going to have chain, quite a bit of chain growth, I would think. Some of them, not all of them. Anyway. Follow the directions. Should be fairly straightforward. Just eye it up. Um, eye it up and keep adding master links until you get to the right length. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or, or do that. Or do that. Um, 
This one is in relation to a previous discussion we had had, because uh, I think on, our, on maybe the episode two weeks ago, we were talking about potentially using, uh, well, um, a propane, propane uh, flame to, to, uh, to burn off contaminants out of disc brake pads. Um, this, this, person com- or this question comes from Jeremy Hammond. Uh, is actually asking about burning off contaminated disc rotors. Uh, would a small camping stove such as an MSR pocket rocket using isobutane work? And are there any tricks other than being careful for not impacting the plastic parts of the ice tech cooling fins? Well, I don't think there are any plastic parts. First of all, I think those are aluminum, but, um, uh, Jura ice rotors, I think, uh, plasticky. Do those have plastic? No, it's still aluminum, but it's like some sort of special heat dissipating paint. Got one above me. Either way, not, not conducive to open flame. I would not Um, put them on a stove. Yeah. But so I, I will admit I have, I have resurrected contaminated disc brake pads using a camping stove. Um, but for a rotor, since those are essentially non-porous metal, you can just use any variety of aggressive solvents. Um, I will often use, um, an automotive disc brake cleaner, um, I, like in bike shops, you'll sometimes see it as like, you know, white lightning clean streak. It's basically the same stuff from what I can tell. Um, but it's just a super aggressive chemical degreaser. And that sort of thing has always worked really well for me for cleaning off rotors. I would not use fire. Yeah, you'll you'll warp the rotor if you get it hot like that. Yeah, I think talking about that on this last podcast, we talked about this a bit before. But I think I mentioned there, I've also heard of people basically boiling the rotors in hot water with obviously hot for boiling um boiling water with dish soap in it and that working uh really well or you can just use rubbing alcohol and a paper towel or something as well yeah i've like james's point can work but i've also had it not work like there there is like it's it's not it's a non-porous material but it's not a perfectly smooth surface and you kind of do get this oil embedded in there so it's possible i've had it before where you think you've got it perfectly clean you spend 10 minutes you know burning solvents into the atmosphere with it and then the first ride, you get the brake hot again, and the sort of oils kind of come out of the out of the pores of the rotor and um, contaminate again. Or the other option is that if it's a really contaminated brake and you've been riding it, it's been squealing, you've probably actually burnished the rotor, so you've probably changed the the structure of that metal where like the oils kind of smooth the surface. So no matter how clean you get it, it's still not going to bite quite as well, and you're still going to probably get vibration and stuff. So. Yeah, I guess in a lot of times in those situations, that rotor will be discolored too. Yeah, exactly. So there are there are definitely situations where no amount of cleaning it will ever fix it, and the solution is start fresh. All right. Well, I guess there's our, there's our answer. Definitely no fire. Um, this is an interesting one that I am curious to, I guess, uh, consult the hive mind on here. This one comes from James Wynn. Um, he said, this might be more of a ask a frame builder question. Um, however... James is saying he has a steel frame that he had made many years ago. Said when he had it built initially, he didn't bother to have bottle cage mounts installed on it. I guess apparently he had some, he was in some form of extreme minimalism phase at the time. Um, He said last year he had his local bike shop put in the mounts. uh, And he said, frankly, they, they didn't do a very good job. I will save you the exact words that he used. Um, And he said the mounts are not centered on the tubes. Is he out of luck? Do any of us have any ideas or experience with fixing something like this? I mean, if it drilled holes crookedly, so it's limited options. Yeah, it sounds like well, it's so it sounds like the shop drilled holes and installed riv nuts, which which would be the most common thing. Um, so my my guess is that um, my guess is that they did not weld or brazen mounts because that would be very much a frame builder thing. Um, but I have a couple of ideas here. One of which I presented to him already on the Velo Club Slack channel is to consult with someone like Ron Andrews at King Cage, who could potentially make something custom for him since the way those cages are made, it might, he might be able to just kind of modify a cage to get it centered on there. But Dave, something I noticed on your Instagram feed the other day that might also work. Trek, it turns out, makes oversized M5 rib nuts that are, what did, you, what did you say, like one to two millimeters larger diameter than normal? Yeah, two mil. Yep. So that is, I mean, this is risky. Like you definitely wouldn't get a second shot at this. But if that shop did install rib nuts into your frame, and if they are slightly off center, if they are just a little bit off center, one possibility could be to drill out those rib nuts, 
drill a bigger hole, I guess machine a bigger hole, but properly centered this time, and then install mm. those rib nuts, right? Uh, I I don't know if that would work so well to be honest. It's <laughs> it's possible, but um, one through that through that like I've been researching rib nuts a lot lately for um uh, trying to fix obvious reasons. For obvious <laughs> reasons, um, I just like spending my time looking at rib nuts. But um, through that through the the finding that you say that product, like you're kidding, but I know you're not. No, um, you're like through, you're like a top <laughs> top five weirdest people I know, Dave Rum. Why? Who's like, who am I competing against? <laughs> I want to know what's stopping me from hitting the <laughs> like just podium being number one. Because I know some weird people. That's why. Yeah. Because I know some yeah, right. real weird people. But you're 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 quirky. Every time Getting you make up a there. podcast, you bump up another slot or two. So you just keep yeah. working at it. Did I tell you that I've been looking at force measuring gloves lately? <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I they're like two thousand well. dollars. But oh, I want to pair so badly. I want to know how much force it takes between different cable cutters to cut cable. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, I digress. Um, riv nuts. Uh, so through this research of finding these Trek riv nuts, I found something called an aligning riv nut, which uh, McMaster car have. And uh, unfortunately, I can't seem to get them in Australia, but you in America can get them. And basically, it, it basically floats the thread within the riv nut. So it lets you put um, a riv nut into something where the bolt needs to be off axis. So but that doesn't I, help if the hole is off is off center. It doesn't. It might not, but it depends how much off center it is. Because you might, if you put a stiff bottle cage on this with the bolt kind of going diagonal, um, I'm showing my hands, which everyone listening can see. Breaking um, the podcasting, Dave. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. It really depends how badly off-center those holes are, but I could imagine with like a really stiff bottle cage that you might be able to get it to work. I think if this were my frame, I would take it to a frame builder mm -hmm. and have them do it properly rather than trying to re-drill holes or use different rib nuts or anything. I would just take it to a frame builder, have them do it properly, and then be done with it. Braze on proper mounts. Yeah. yeah That's like, a good answer. There's, there's, no, there's no structural concern with like basically drilling new holes, brazing on some new mounts, and just using the bottle cage to cover up the holes that aren't where they're supposed to be, right? Because I'm assuming they're not, like, on the side of the tube. They're probably no, off no, by, it, like, a millimeter or no, so, right? It, it sounds so, like so they're off a very slight amount. Just cover that shit up. Cover it up. Cover it up with, with a water bottle cage, and you'll never see but it. But if they're rebrazing and stuff, that seems much more safe than just... Going at it and drilling more holes. <laughs> I, well, no, I'm not. I'm not saying to drill more holes. Make the hole bigger. <laughs> I think you just drill some new holes that are like you know up, up a little bit and off to the side so they're centered, and then just hope that that covers up the original holes. With I mean, you've got a hole down tube. I would just take the drill and just keep going until you get it, <laughs> I mean, get them straight. Like, it's a steel frame. It. You should be trying yeah. to make it lighter anyway. <laughs> yeah, oh, like just you got the whole tube. Drilling just drilling just em. get on after it. So I had someone ask me on, on Instagram based off the back of me asking about riv nuts as to whether I'd recommend they drill the top of their aluminium top tube to add uh, like a bento box style mounts to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your thoughts on that? I, I thought it's something I personally wouldn't do, but thoughts, guys? Yeah, Would you? I mean, if it's not, no. I feel like big, big anti not just drilling holes in your frame. It might be fine. It probably will be fine. But if it's not, it's not worth it. Yeah. And it, I guess we should always add that generally speaking, when manufacturers put holes in their frames, usually those frames are designed to have those holes in there. So like in a carbon frame in particular, those holes are reinforced with additional material or braided material, that sort of thing. Uh, and aluminum frames, I'm not actually 100% sure if the area where the holes are inserted are thicker than I think normal. it depends on the frame. Like if it's some super high-end aluminum frame where it's really thin, like they're going to take into account. If it's like a right. $400 hybrid, they're just really Yeah, old. this is a Canyon. Canyon gravel. Top, tube, yeah. top tubes are often fairly thin. Yeah. yeah. And by the head, like it's just not, don't do it. All right. Well, that's enough on this topic of drilling holes. Let's move on here. Um... This one, this question, well, this is another steel frame question. This one's particularly intriguing. Uh, this one comes from Adrian Lees, who would like to know if you can cut down a steel head tube. Uh, he said he has a frame that he likes, but the head tube sticks above the top tube just enough to spoil its lines. He's wondering, is it as simple as 
hacksawing off as square as possible <laughs> and then borrowing a facer to get it to spec? Um, I would say uh, <laughs> don't just hacksaw your frame. <laughs> no. I mean, to, to me, so having, I think probably... So, so, oh man. So, so Dave and Zach, I think, I think the three of us, we've probably, all three of us have probably used a head tube facer in real yeah, before. Yeah, for sure. And I would say that in theory, hacksawing off the top of your head tube could be viable if you were to, able to cut it really, really square. But because, you're not going to be able to. No, because the question is, or the issue is that those head tube reamers and facers really aren't designed to remove that much material. And so it won't you take could long do it. Dull. Well, I think the first it depends on the inside of the head tube. Usually where the headset cup is pressed into the frame is kind of reinforced. There are no reinforcements on this frame. So if there's no reinforcements, already. if it's just straight the whole way, theoretically, yes, you could slowly shave it down with the facer, which I've done not on a head tube but i've done on a mountain bike bottom bracket ages and ages ago so i could put a road crank on my mountain bike took 73 shell and turned it down to 68 oh my <laughs> and it works <laughs> but i mean i guess if the aesthetics are that bad then go to town but those tools aren't cheap if you do wear the blade out yeah um i would say this is just like zach's previous advice to go to a frame builder uh i think this is another example of where you should go to a frame builder because they'd probably have a mill where they'd just be able to rest the bottom of the head tube on the mill plate and then just mill down the top head tube to the right length and do it pretty quickly might cost you a few hundred dollars but the job would be done perfectly and you're not gonna go through a facing tool in the process and not potentially completely ruin a frame and not ruin a frame, right? Like, yeah, it'll it'll the job will be done right. Uh, yeah, don't use a hacksaw, please. Uh, Adrian, <laughs> if you do end up just going ahead and having at it with a hacksaw, I send would like photos. to see this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel, I've seen photos. it done on Pegretti's before because Pegretti's traditionally they go stick Very up long, long. tube extension. And I've seen people yeah. shave that down, so it can be done. But like I said, if Adrian, it, I believe in you. Yeah, do it up. Just don't hacksaw. Get that hacksaw out. Draw a really straight sharpie line. And you got this. You take a Dremel around too. Just go in a nice steady circle. That yeah, would work oh really my. well. Yeah, yeah. Oh my. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Last question before we wrap up. This one comes from longtime member Chris Young. Uh, so as we know, we do know this. Uh, Chris has gone the N-1 route and only has one bike, a Cervelo Aspero. Said it handles multiple duties for him, gravel, road, and Zwift. Said he's pretty fastidious about keeping it clean and making sure the drivetrain runs smoothly. However, he is wondering how much stress he is creating by switching wheels, pedals, and also mounting it onto his smart trainer. Is there anything that he should be doing to keep a check on the frame and parts to make sure they are all in good running order? I mean, I feel like maybe theoretically you're wearing things out by switching wheels all the time, but I mean, you have to look at, say, pro bikes. They're taking the wheels on and off every single day. And as long as there's grease on the threads and you're not cross-threading the through axles or your pedals... I wouldn't be that concerned. And not grossly over-tightening them. Yeah, torquing them to spec. Have we answered uh, this, this question is, already? Uh, you know, I feel I, like it sounds familiar. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I mm. don't... I mean, he just he just posted this the other day, so oh, I'm not sure. Okay. But one thing, uh, and, and if, if we have answered this, I'm about to give a similar answer, I believe, to what I said before. Uh, so this was years and years ago. Uh, Leonard Zinn, who was the former technical editor at Vela News, I remember he did some sort of study where he looked at crank arm fatigue and pedal threads and and uh i guess specifically looking at like things like pedal washers and how tight you're putting your pedals in um because there is a common idea out there that your pedals don't actually need to be that tight in the crank arm um and i remember apparently the results of his study said that it actually does matter because if you have that too loose then your crank arm will fatigue faster than it would otherwise so um chris as far as we can tell this shouldn't be an issue but yeah as far when putting your pedals on i would probably recommend using those crank crank washers crank arm washers if they are recommended for your crank uh and yeah for sure torquing to spec i'd I'd also say if you're doing this that often then maybe consider getting a a pedal system that you can just use for for both because then it's just one less thing you're gonna have to worry about all the time it's one less change in your fit because your fit is going to change between swapping between mountain bike and road pedals it's it's a different stack height so um you know unless you've counted for that you know with with matching the shoes perfectly or using shims or something you're, you're basically changing your saddle height every time you change your pedals so i would Which say maybe more problematic yeah exactly so i'd say yeah first thing would be 
get a really nice mountain bike shoe that's you know has the same stiffness and a low weight and is competitive to a road pedal system and just run that and then at that point you're really only worrying about the wheels or use just red pedals big fan of red pedals on gravel bikes uh, so is kaylee as as not planning going for a hike <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thankfully neither of you run speed play yes <laughs> all right all right well that's a wrap for this week's show. We're going to go ahead and tie that off right now. If you regularly visit the Cycling Tips website, you may have noticed that we just kicked off a new column called Mailbag, where we are also taking reader questions and answering them on the website. So along with sending us your submissions via the private Velo Club member Slack channel, anyone else who is not a Velo Club member, shame on you, uh, can also send questions to us at tech at cyclingtips.com, and hopefully we'll get to it on Cycling Tips. Uh, and also, if you haven't already subscribed to the Nerd Alert podcast, please do so. If you haven't already left us a glowing, absolutely glowing review and rating on iTunes, shame on you again. That is always super appreciated as well. Uh, you may have noticed that we don't run ads on Nerd Alert, and that is by design. So if you love the show, please continue to tell your friends how much you enjoy it, because that really does help us continue bringing it, bringing the show to you. Uh, all right. Well, that's all we got for this week. We'll see you next time. Woo! Bye.